you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. Quite deliberately today on this panel about disability alongside Shani, I have Jane Simpson and Ed Warner, who they themselves don't have lived experience of disability, but are demonstrating real coalition and putting action into action their power to help amplify the disability voice in the sector. We, of course, have many people with lived experience of disability across output, but I made this decision to make a specific point about how quiet the disability voice is in the profession and it's beholden upon all of us to support and concern ourselves with how much we're thinking about disability in the sector, uh, be it how we attract and educate those with lived experience of disability and or neurodivergence, how we treat and progress those in our practices and organisations, how we create the products and services we offer and how we engage our external external stakeholders with disabilities and neurodivergence. So let's talk disability in architecture and just like I mentioned we still have with us Shani Danda. Uh, I also have Jane Simpson, who's on the Architects for Change Committee here at the RIBA, and Ed Warner, CEO of Motion Spot and the government champion for accessible design and spaces and products. Um, Jane, if I can start by asking you, can you describe yourself and what's your relationship with the word disability? Okay, that's interesting because I just had to knock on the window, get my husband to turn off the power hose. <laughs> which was suddenly decided to do. Uh, yeah, I got involved in Access South uh, three decades ago when I first qualified as an architect. Um, and I was kind of thrown into it. I did disabled facilities grants and some of my best friends uh, from that, that time. And I learned so much from those people individually. And it just became a career for me. And I absolutely adore it. Um, and I, I know where to know Sharda. And uh, it's, it's a huge world out there. And we just need people to actually take it on board. It's... We design for everybody. That's that's my approach. Um, and I help Reba out a lot with regs and standards groups and other, other areas. So uh, it's a huge market out there for people to please come, help, join in. And I think the more architects that take this on board, the better the whole society will be. And Ed, if I can ask you to describe yourself and what's your relationship with this word disability? Hello, Marsha. Uh, lovely to be here and thank you for, for inviting me. My, um, my, I suppose my relationship with disability started 10 years ago now after I started the accessible design business Motion Spot, inspired by an old school friend and co-founder, James Taylor, who sadly suffered a, a spinal cord injury in a diving accident age 25. Uh, he returned to his flat in Battersea, South London, to find it looking more like a care home than his own home, full of all the 
products that are often so synonymous with disability and aging. And as a friend at the time, I said, let me try and help you find some decent products that make your home feel like a home as opposed to a hospital. So that's what first opened my eyes to disability. Uh, and I realised that, to Jane's point, there weren't enough people you know, looking at this area and blending function with form. So that was, that was my first involvement with it. Shani, um, if I can ask you, how important is representation? <laughs> because, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, obviously you're doing this acting now as well and, and, and um, you know, highlighting presumably to highlight this idea of representation, uh, visible re representation to, to help start to instill a little bit more of that idea of, you know, this is this is anybody, this is everybody, this could be any one of us. Oh, we can't hear Shani. Um, uh, Shani, I'm afraid we, we can't hear you. So if you can make sure that your mic is on. That's, you know what? <laughs> We're doing really well. We're halfway through <laughs> Rima Radio. That's the first time that's happened. So Shani, you're making the point about representation. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the first thought when we think about disabilities or ramps and wheelchairs. Um, but I, I guess growing up, I... I, ha I had no disability representation, and I mean that uh, at its broadest sense of disability, but then delving a little bit deeper into diverse representation of disability. And I think what struck me the most now as an adult is I've learned that there are certain communities, especially uh, ethnic minority communities and South Asian communities that are more predisposed to conditions and impairments therefore have higher rates of disability but I never see these people anywhere so I, I guess from a young age I, I always knew I wanted to become part of the change that I wanted to see um, and I guess these opportunities to be on screen which I'm enjoying right now is one avenue um, but I think representation really really is important and from a young age you know I I regularly go past children, whether, you know, I'm in the supermarket or in a shopping centre, and they're so curious. And look, I've I've got a short stature. I'm usually about the same height as the child that's pointing me out and saying, oh, look, mummy, there's a small lady. And I don't find that offensive in the slightest. But what I do find really awkward is the parent will tell the child off. The parent will avoid having that uh, confrontation. And I'm just like, that's not the way to deal with it at all. Like, I th if anything, use it as an opportunity to talk about diversity and how we will, you know, different shapes and sizes and colours. Yeah, I think that's really important. I remember a really clear story. I remember um, a few years ago talking to, to colleagues about how, uh, it, again, in the, it's always in the supermarket, isn't it? In the yeah. supermarkets uh, that uh, she, you know, her daughter saw someone who I think was in a wheelchair and um, or, or, and, and, and the child pointed out and said, oh, mummy, why is that man in a wheelchair? And she said, well... I don't know, go and ask him, uh, which I think is a really refreshing. And then and the, and the person in the wheelchair did then say to uh, to my friend, uh, you know, uh, thank you, because so often it's like, oh, told off or don't look, don't stare. Well, actually, engage in the conversation is definitely one of the things to do. And and that idea of representation, um, uh, Jane, you've you've been in this space now for, for quite some time. Sorry, I don't mean that. <laughs> Jane, you've been around forever. Um, <laughs> no, uh, but in your experience, 
how how have you tried to amplify that that disability voice in the profession? I think in everything I do, to be quite honest with you, it's um, what, what I try to get architects to understand is not just another design process. It's just about understanding how things work and looking at it. And there's this sort of impression that it's social work. It's not social work. We're all individuals. I did a programme recently for the radio where the premise of the, the question was, what if we were all disabled? Well, we all are to some extent. So what we need to think about is how do we design, not for the golden man, not for the golden section, but for that, that full diversity. And you're never going to get what I would classify as a completely accessible building because it's not nothing's ever accessible to everybody. What we need to ensure is that we've got inclusive design that welcomes and brings everybody into it. And I, I think I'll give you a little instance. I once went round an energy for waste plant, would you believe? And um, I looked round and the tonal contrast was spot on. And the contractor went, I work with you on a school in Rotherham. <laughs> Basically, he'd learned from me. He'd remembered it. And I think that's that what I try to do in my work is help people and teach people what you need to think about and how you need to move forward. Ed, you um, uh, have, have this uh, desire, uh, if you like, to change, you know, to encourage a culture of change across the industry and make sure that spaces and products are better. Where, tell me a bit more about your drive to be this ally and, and to, to have this coalition with, with those with disabilities. I think you know that drive comes from both my my job professionally but also my involvement at government level with design of accessible products and spaces so professionally with motion spot you know I saw in the very early days that that as Jane said the the offer on the market just wasn't good enough for disabled people. And I was driven to, to, to want to see a change for my friend James, and that then led on to, to wanting to see change across other people's homes, but also commercial spaces, whether they be workplaces, retirement villages or, or hotels. Um, certainly, most recently, uh, in, in my role as government sector champion for design of accessible products and spaces, I've been... I've been driven to, to 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 really want to generate change in this space, and and really my vision in 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 that perspective has been to try and encourage businesses to design more inclusively, and to to build more accessible spaces within their built environment, but also to engage and involve more disabled people in the design process from the outset. Still, you know, not enough people are involved in the design of accessible products. Um, and even if they are involved, they tend to just be asked as part of a focus group at the start of the design process. And for me, that just doesn't wash. You know, in order to get truly inclusive products and spaces, there has to be engagement right the way through that design process. We're broadcasting live from 66 Portland Place here at the bookshop. And if you hear noises and things going on, they're obviously still an open bookshop. So uh, just in case you're, you're wondering what's going on. Um, Jane, if I can ask you, what do you, what, why is it, does it appear to be so difficult? Why does it appear to be that the disability voice just isn't loud enough in the sector? And what's stopping the sector from being better? around this this point? I think in, in many ways, it's actually not the education, although I think there could be improvements in education of architects in particular, because I think I find students far, far more accepting and more interested and wanting to know and wanting to learn 
I think it goes back to the sort of issues you've probably been talking about all week about the control of the industry is very much white, middle-class, male-led. Um, and quite often I find it's easy to deal with the architects on the shop floor. Um, and I also think there is, a, there is this feeling that it's difficult for them and that it's going to cost money. And as I always say, the sooner you think about it, the cheaper it is, uh, not only in in monetary terms, but also in the architect's redraw. And as soon as you start saying that to them, they start to think, oh, okay, I can save myself some time. And again, going back to the point that was, meant be was made before, majority of people are not born with a disability, they develop one. Uh, and it, it happened to my husband when he was, how old was he? 43, I think he was, something like that. Um, and, you know, it will it will come to all of us. And if, if people start to understand that, it actually starts to make them think about their own environment and how it would affect them. One in four people has a very close family member or friend who has a disability. Just need to get that across. And I think we should use this moment to actually push the industry to start to consider it. And I think it's sometimes they're very scared to ask the questions, very scared. I mean... I once got accused of using the medical model because I was describing the implications of some disabilities. But unfortunately, unless designers understand what the limitations are, they can't design the barriers out. So we've got to somehow get a link between the medical and social model and, and come up with a way that designers can understand what they need to do. And if you, and that's what designers are good at. Jane, you made this point about um, the social model and the medical model of disability. And, and Shani, if you could explain again a little bit, what is that social model of, of disability? What does that mean? Sure. So the social model of disability is a way of viewing the world developed by disabled people. And the model says that, uh, that people are disabled by barriers in society, not by their impairment or their difference. And, you know, barriers can be physical, like um, not having uh, access to certain buildings, for example, or they can be caused by people's attitudes to difference, like assuming disabled people can't do certain things. And why I love the social model is because it helps us recognise are the barriers that make life harder for disabled people and by removing the barriers that's what helps to create you know uh, equality and equity and it offers disabled people more independence control and choice and jane you talked about the medical model so so what is that what does that mean i think i mean if you go back to the 1970s with the chronically sick and and Disabled People's Act, which kind of sums it up completely. It's basically saying that it's the disabled person's fault that they can't get into somewhere, and that's just not, not the case at all. I mean, we're very lucky in the UK in many ways because we have British standards. We have some really, really useful guidance documents. Uh, they don't go far enough, but again, it's not, about, it's not about the disabled person not being able to get in. It's about designers not thinking effectively and designing so that it enables as many people as possible to, to get into places with equity. And I think the equity is the most important thing. It's not just about getting through the front door. It's about how you get through that front door. 
Yes, and, and just to be clear, the difference between equity and equality, equality suggests that uh, everyone should be given the same, which is fine if everybody is at the same start point. But of course, that isn't always the case. And so equity speaks to addressing needs and uh, redressing historical imbalance. Um, Ed, when you um, do your role in, in, in this government advisor role, you know, what are you trying to do uh, and, and achieve with that? So just following on from what, what Jane and Shani have said, it's, it's really around the levelling up piece, um, giving people the, the equity to be able to access products and services and spaces in the same way as everyone else. Um, so, you know, the types of initiatives that I've been involved in over the last two and a half years have spanned everything from working with the British Beer and Pub Association to encourage them to to have more accessible pubs and bars across the UK. 20,000 um, pubs and bars across the UK now have um, guidance on how to make those spaces more accessible. Uh, I've worked with organisations like the Centre for Ageing Better to encourage them to look at how accessible and inclusive products can be designed, particularly for older people. Um, and I think it's come up in some of the, the topics you've addressed as part of as part of this um, radio event that actually if you just design products well, um, you know, with access in mind, you design naturally well for, for everybody. So those are the types of initiatives I've been involved in. And it's not just designing well i mean it's fair to say that you want to design beautifully as well isn't it yeah i mean that's that's been a core part of of our ethos at motion spot since we set up the business in in 2012 uh, as i say driven by james's experience that accessible spaces have tended in the past to feel second best in their design it always tends to be a, a bit of an afterthought when it comes to the design of a building in particular and as we know, there are you know thousands of really talented, creative designers, both architects and interior designers out there. They just need a bit more confidence and knowledge as to how to design things to be accessible, spaces to, to be accessible for everybody. But do that in a creative way. Don't just tick a box and dr drag and drop the same pack of products into each clinical looking wheelchair accessible toilet. Let's bring a bit of fun. Let's bring a bit of creativity to it. So that's always been central to the work we do. And certainly I, I understand that uh, architects per se are, are problem solvers. They, they want to take a, a challenge and, and address it in an, in, as an innovative way as possible. And so it's, it should be seen as a real opportunity, Jane. Oh, completely. And I, meant, I, I just want to quote the uh, National uh, Disability Strategy. There's a couple of really good points in that. Um, and the first one of them, it says, it talks about the longer term ambition putting disabled people at the heart of design and delivery of services. But also the call to action is that disability is everyone's business. And I think that's when architects can really, really help with this process, take it on board, understand that we are not. I always say we get young, we get old, we have children, we have temporary disabilities. We're, we're all, all of us could be impacted by our built environment. We just need to be a bit more considerate of it. Shani, if, if you can think, I'm sure you have loads of examples, but can you share an experience of a particularly bad design uh, experience, like a, a environment that you've had to navigate because, you know, someone just simply, the, the designers behind just simply haven't thought enough 
about who is using this space. Can you share an example? I've got so many, Mosh. I don't really know where to start. <laughs> um, I think what I find challenging the most is even things like doorbells being out of reach or door knockers. And if I'm on my own and I don't know, I don't have the number of where I need to go to or who to meet, I'm just stuck outside because oh actually I've just thought of one as well you know automatic doors they barely pick me up on the sensor it's so annoying and you know um some corridors and things are lit by sensors as well I'm often left walking in the dark so yeah I could I could probably write a book but uh, there's so many different things. But that's not uh, just been... you. Presumably that's the same for children as well. So like these designs just don't even take into account that we've got a population of children in yeah. our world. And I, I guess people might think, well, children won't be unaccompanied. But I just think, you know, this market, you know, the disability market is rising less on a like 14 percent per year that's that's estimated um and you know as we've all all the speakers that have already spoken about this could be one of us at any point if we only design with the average person in mind with all the biases that we have and not thinking about the whole range of human diversity that exists then we're really missing a trick like yes we could sit here and talk about the business case but there's the moral reasons are even bigger and as disabled people, when when we have to navigate inaccessible transport, inaccessible uh, leisure, inaccessible um, workplaces, our homes become our safe spaces. But you know, my home is inaccessible, and because I rent, I my hands are a bit tied in terms of what I can adapt as well. So not we are you know some some people some people can't even leave their front door, you know so. I, I just think people need to think about what would, how would they like to be treated and, and their loved ones if they were in this similar position. Jane, what actions would you like to see your colleagues of architects take in order to embrace, you know, the disability voice, not only, not only in design, but in terms of those that employ um and engaging external stakeholders as well <laughs> that's a big ask lots <laughs> i think what architects have got to do is, is step back and actually think what can we do how can we change things and i know that if you employ a disabled person the whole practice will learn from that person and it becomes a self-perpetuating um goal really for me um please read the best practice standards. And I would also say around children's needs, we don't have any standards around children, disabled children or children. Um, and as a nation, I think that's, you know, we're talking about the nine protected characteristics and one of which is age. Think about disability in the sense of older people. They are, they are clients market. If you don't see that, then you're losing, you're losing an awful lot. Think about the purple pound, it's massive. It's, it's absolutely huge. I always say, because my husband lost the use of left arm and hand through cancer, 2004, I think it was. And I quite often I do lectures, say to people, try to get yourself dressed with one hand tomorrow. Okay, see if you can do it. Sometimes you've just got to get architects to sort of put, put, put themselves in that position. Just think about it. I don't say act it out because I don't like that. That's horrible. But think about it. Um, and people will suddenly, as the light bulb goes on, 
And once a light bulb goes on on one thing, then they start to look at the other things as well. So it's just think about it. And call me anytime. Ed, you know, uh, one thing I've, I've noticed, uh, generally there's a great deal of fear about addressing a lot of uh, uh, diversity characteristics um, and there's a real fear around getting it wrong. And we, we did look at that at CQ Drive Day. Uh, but what is what are your experiences of seeing architects talk about disability? Are they willing to engage in the in the area? Absolutely. And we're seeing a much greater shift to architects being more aware that it needs to be planned in at a much earlier stage. Um, and they're becoming more aware of who they're designing the buildings for. Um, they're not just designing for one one type of person. Um, but there's an awful lot more that can be done. I think the, the fear comes about um, because architects don't want to be told when a building gets built that they've got something wrong. Um, so often what they do is they just default to what they always have done, um, which has been signed off by building control, and, 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 and they almost tick the box around accessibility. And just leading on from what Shani was saying, I think there'd be a great market, Shani, for your book around small small design improvements um, that, that just make such a difference to, to people's lives because it's actually those practical points that make such a difference in design. Um, our team were involved in a fascinating workshop just last week with um, a workplace client who got us in to, to, to look at their workplace and to... to teach them all the all the elements that could be designed better from an access perspective and we coordinated a group of a focus group of of disabled people to be part of that session and that really opened the architect's eyes having disabled people engage in the the workplace and just just really show designers what some of the challenges were so simple things like in kitchenettes you know big workplace kitchenettes all the mugs are at certain height all the teas coffees are at certain height just bringing those down to a more accessible level putting a small you know um, upstand edge on a kitchen worktop so that if hot water from the cooker tap spills all over the workplace it worktop it's not gonna cover someone who's in a in a wheelchair and what we saw from the focus group the day after was actually designers coming to us saying, oh, actually, we've thought about moving the books in the library bookshelves to the right accessible height. And we've started to colour contrast light switches so that anyone with a visual impairment can begin to pick out where it is. So it's really just giving people the confidence and knowledge as to where some of the challenges are and getting them to think about the solutions. So, Shani, uh, small design improvements. I think there's a, a great a play on words there <laughs> to help you. Uh, so you just, just need to find a publisher for that one. I mean, what yeah. other sort of uh, thoughts and ideas and, and experiences do you think could be brought into that kind of thinking? Um, I think I think just involving a, a wide variety of disabled people, you know, um, not just also sticking with the most common types either. And and remember that, yes, you will need to understand um, or, or think about some medical stuff in relation to disability at some level, but let's remember the social model because that's going to help us to spot exclusion and then help us to remove the barriers. Oh, there's so many though, but what I've never really understood is if you're if you're someone of a short stature like me, why do why do people put everything at, like really high? Like, why do people put things out of reach? Because if you're tall, 
nine times out of ten you're going to be able to reach something that's lower than you but if you're sure unless you carry a stool or a ladder around with you which I don't I can't reach things out of my reach so there's another free tip <laughs> yeah and actually um it's, it's all about the the data around what what is the norm what is the average and, and there is no no average I mean a great um uh, example of this is really really well detailed in the book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez which I highly highly recommend can make you a little bit angry <laughs> when you start to realise the massive data gap between um, men and women but certainly you know women as an if you were to have an average woman is smaller than the average man uh, and so of course there's a huge number of women who are then even smaller again still so um, there's a gender uh, bias there as as well um jane uh, when you're you know as part of your messaging around you know accessibility and and listening to that disability voice what are that you know you talked about standards you always you do talk about standards and you send me lots of really great emails about standards um what 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 do people have to be thinking about here which are the which are the key uh ideas and and standards that exist that are already there already providing that advice already providing that guidance for best practice uh, i mean obviously the best one is bs8300 as part one and part two um what i will say firstly is adm in england because bear in mind it varies throughout the uk but in england it actually states at the beginning meeting adm does not necessarily constitute meeting the quality legislation. adm do you mind breaking that down for me approved document m of building regulations um and it, it tells you that that's probably not going to be sufficient so getting a building regulation sign off is not enough it's not sufficient so you need to look at best practice so you're looking at bs8300 sport england have got their own guidance Arts Council have some guidance. There's inclusive mobility, which is externals. Um, all of these are constantly being updated. I mean, I'm, I'm working at the moment, representing Reba on a pass, looking at electric charging stations, would you believe? So every, every single element in the built environment needs to be considered from an inclusive perspective. Um, and I will say a word of warning to, to architects as well, it is cyclic. So your BS8300 has been updated. ADM might not necessarily be the same. They may vary between them. So you, the designers have got to use all of those standards and sort of pick the bits that suit that particular situation. It, it's That is a designer's role, really. And, um, yeah, BS8300, Sport England, Sign Design Guide, Inclusive Mobility. Um, there's a really good um, thing called Inclusive Projects, which was about how you should organise your project. And that's, I think it was 2007. I'd like somebody to rewrite that one, please. So somebody wants to pick that one up and rewrite it it'd be great uh ed uh, i think you've got the government's ear uh so uh, when, when you're when you're doing this work w with the with government you know how, how do you see yourself moving forward with that and what do you want to see change as a result of the advice that you're giving so my role in government actually ends in march of next year so i'm on hurry up then i'm on i'm on <laughs> I'm on a real push to try and get as much achieved before then as possible. <clears throat> I think from from my perspective, what what I see a lot of is 
there are a huge number of of regulations out there and if you've read bs8 300 or part m it's not the most um enjoyable read it is very text heavy and it can be quite confusing for people who are new to this profession jane's been doing this for 30 years and 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 sorry jane for bringing that up again. i'm sorry jane you you are the fairy god godmother of of accessibility standards um so so but there are not enough people out there like jane who who really know this detail inside out and I think what we need to do is to educate and empower architects and designers to really understand the key principles and the way of doing that is by engaging access specialists and access consultants but also trying to put it in a in in a more visual way for creative people Um, you know if you ask a creative person to design accessibly and you give them 180 pages of text it's going to be very difficult to get a creative output from that so we're big believers in in trying to really kind of visually inspire architects and designers to prove what's possible, to get across what those key design principles are and do it in a way through photography and video and 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 short case studies that just inspire thought and action as opposed to asking someone to read however many pages of text. Yeah, a really, really, really good point. And Jane, just not enough people out there like you. Um, you know, how can you encourage others... Uh, to be more Jane? Well, I've been um, doing part two and part three lecturing for quite a while in schools of architecture. And I was approached by uh, Thomas Kirby, if you're listening in, Tom, um, when he was doing his part two. And because of working with me, he went on to do inclusive design, looking at the Manchester Town Hall uh, project. um, And he wants to become an NREC consultant. We've already got Kate who's become an NREC consultant at Averstocks. So I would encourage more architects to think about doing that, think about becoming them. And I had a little message from a friend who said, don't forget to mention the PAS 6463 design for the mind, which is around neurodiversity. (laughs) So I would say to people, keep your eyes open. And one thing I did want to mention, which I've got scribbled down here, I'm not sure it's the right time, but I've been doing some lectures with um, um, Helen Taylor from Scott Brownrigg on inclusive educational buildings. And we asked the architects listening in, what stops you from doing inclusive buildings? And generally, Generally, when you've got a larger group, because it's very difficult when you get a small group, larger group, it's split a third, a third, knowledge, clients, and availability of funds. So it's not just about getting the knowledge to the architects and get the architects to accept it. We need the clients to understand that it's important and we need the money to be available to do inclusive buildings. Mm. Shani, if I can give you the last word, just not enough people out there doing it, what, what would you say to them? I think... Um... We, we need to understand it's our collective responsibility, uh, you know, to remove barriers. And it's, it's in our own self-interest to be an ally to people from, you know, not only diverse and oppressed groups, but disabled communities. Uh, and, and ultimately, our struggles are tied to everybody else's. So every decision that we make either raises or lowers barriers to participation in society. This is, you know, the power and responsibility. I really believe architects need to understand that they have. And and I guess my question back to to the community is what action we will take now? What action will you all take now? Thanks to Shani Danda, Jane Simpson and Ed Warner talking about disability in architecture. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action.